All right, welcome back to, let's see here, I'll call it episode 196 of Backlash Podcast. I'm not even positive that's right because I can't remember exactly, but I know we're slowly creeping up on episode 200. Brad and I need to uh, really figure out what we're going to do for that episode because we did something special for episode 100, and I don't know that we'll top it, but we should probably get something to go in. And based off of what I can tell, it's like four weeks away, so it'll be like an early Christmas present or maybe a right around Christmas present. So look for episode 200 in the near future. This week we're going to talk to Matt Gunkel with Lunge and Lures, and we talked to his partner Chris, I don't know, probably, I'd like to say it was like four weeks ago, but it's probably been like eight. But anyway, so we, uh, we're not talking so much about lunge and lures as we are about, we talk about Southern Illinois and we're going to talk about Southern Illinois, but it's, I don't know, Brad, how do you explain the episode? We're going to talk about, I guess, all things. We're talking about confidence baits and just baits in general and compare and contrast Northern muskies and Southern muskies. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we kind of go around the planet, right? We get off on some tangents here a little bit, but ultimately, uh, it should be a good experience for the listener. We talk pretty in-depth about some of the different patterning that takes place and kind of the differences, like you said, between the North and the South. And oddly, it's going to be one of our longest episodes we've had in like forever. You know, Matt did a great job of uh, keeping the conversation rolling and Brad did too. I jumped in there in the beginning and Brad kind of took over at the end. But uh, anyways, so that's kind of what's up. You know, uh, if you're, you know, if, if you're looking to, uh, combat what's going to be winter blues here very shortly, you can always look to, uh, head south and there's lots of musky opportunities if you decide to move that direction. If you're from, you know, the Midwest, if you're from south and perfect, just keep on fishing and you're good to go. And so if you are south and you are still fishing, if you're still in the Midwest and you're not iced up yet and you're still looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventures, Make sure you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. That's us. I'm the owner. And you can uh, find pretty much everything you need to chase down fall muskies there. Always adding more and more and more. And I've been working overtime on the website. And uh, we will have some, you know, new stuff coming. Some bigger, I guess I'd say some bigger news to come. But we're, uh, we're still working out details on that. So anyways, you can do that. Or you can head on over and check out muskymayhemtackle.com. And Brad, you want to talk a little bit about Musky Mayhem Tackle? I think I saw Carrie sent out an email. You guys must have a ton of Musky Mayhem clothing around that place. Yeah, honestly, I came in from fishing the day, Jeff, and it's a kind of a struggle to walk through our shop right now. Tons and tons of new sweatshirts. I know there's been some t-shirts that she posted uh, not too long ago. And then a big selection of hats as well. So... You can check them out online, that's for sure, and we will also have them at the shows this winter. Excellent. So, Brad, quick update, you know, before we jump into our conversation with Matt. Um, Weather-wise, it's not looking real great right now, and, 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 and it hasn't been for you on the water. I know you were out there today with Chase because Chase decided to come back. I don't know why. He was in the south and it had to have been lots warmer, but he decided to come back and hang out with you for another couple of weeks. Well, the strange part is, is, you know, a week ago, um, when the last podcast came out, we were in the seventies, we were practically wearing shorts again. Um, if you were on the water, the water temps have been cooling down. So you might've been bundled up a little bit more, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the bottom dropped out at this point, Jeff. So we are dealing with some pretty harsh environment when you're out on the water. I don't know. It's not looking good. If you're looking at the 10 day for Minnesota, that's for sure. Yeah, it's not looking a lot better if you're in my area. That'd be like uh, central Wisconsin or to northern Wisconsin. Yeah, it looks like 
it it looks rough, but we'll see what happens. Sometimes, you know, things take a, a 180 and, and it's for the better and things, you know, go in the right direction. But certainly right now, as of this podcast, it's not pointed in the right direction. But anyways, Brad, I don't know. You got anything else you want to add to the intro? Otherwise, I'll just say we'll just dial up our conversation with Matt. Let's go get after it, Jeff. All right, our guest this week is Matt Gunkel, and Matt would be a co-owner of Lunge and Lures. We've talked to Chris, uh, his partner in Lunge and Lures, many times, at least two or three, but we never had Matt on. Matt, uh, and, and the odd thing about about it is you and you and Chris, you probably don't even get together that often and see each other in person. Most of your stuff's probably either done in you know FaceTime or email or you know phone call or text messages because you're kind of in opposite ends of the world, and especially like with Chris. I mean, for a while there, he's operating his business in Hawaii while you're over here in Illinois. So definitely kind of a different dynamic there, huh, Matt? That's right on, Jeff. When we started the company, Chris was in California, and then him and Carrie have been in Hawaii and New Jersey, and now they're in Colorado. So we've always been geographically separated, but we've always kind of separated our responsibilities. And with technology today, there's really not not a reason to to have to be together to get things done. Well, Matt, let's kind of talk about that a little bit because, I mean, before you and uh, Chris were business partners, you guys were actually fishing partners. So, you know, it's the first time we've had you on the podcast. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you're up to, maybe what got you into musky fishing? So I started musky fishing in my early 20s. I got introduced just by a couple of friends that fished some of the Indiana lakes. I'd kind of been a fisherman my whole life. After I finished uh, undergrad, college, I wanted to pursue a graduate degree, and I came to Southern Illinois University, which is in Carbondale, which is my present residence still, 13 years later. Um, there, but there's some fisheries in Southern Illinois. The one that's really co- or commonly known is Lake Kincaid. We also have a couple smaller reservoirs north and a, a few strip pits. Uh, me and Chris met when he was in school, and I was in school here in Southern Illinois, and we fished together. The first year I moved here, and the next year we fished the tournament circuit together, um, and we're fortunate to do fairly well. We learned a lot from each other because we had really different fishing backgrounds, kind of different backgrounds in general, besides uh, the area we grew up with, both kind of the Chicago suburbs. He was from like the Northwest Burbs, and I was from the Southwest Burbs. So I finished up my graduate degree, and I found a job here in Southern Illinois, and so I've stayed. I started working here in 2011, and I've been here ever since. Um, and I still try to get to fish fish our local fisheries as much as possible, as well as travel around a little bit and musky fish. And for about, I don't know, a good 11 years, muskies were the only fish that I really cared about fishing, unless I was invited to go do something else, or unless my dad wanted to go fish for something else. Um, now I do do a little more multi-species, but I would still say I'm primarily musky, and that's my first choice. If, if there's several species I can go chase, I usually choose muskies. So, Matt, let's talk a little bit about Lungeon quickly. We we got a brief update on things from Chris not that far back, but which one was it? Was it you or Chris that talked to each, you know, talked the other one into thinking this was a good idea to get involved in the uh, fishing industry as far as, like, the tackle side of things? <laughs> That's funny that you say it as talking one person in, into it. Uh, it was Chris that talked me into it. And hindsight 2020, I said, like the second year or so that we were doing it, if I would have known what all it was going to take, the amount of personal growth, the amount or the lack of 
personal time or as well as resources, I, I, I would have probably resisted quite a bit more, but he talked me into it and we went down this kind of rabbit hole. Um, I had never really been familiar with the muskie industry, but I had worked in college. I, I worked some of the trade shows for a few fishing shops. So I'd kind of been in that, in that realm a little bit. And I traveled around. We did a show in Indianapolis. We did one in Chicago. And then there's a Tinley Park fishing show in, in the suburbs of Chicago that I, I worked maybe uh, probably three years in a row. But yeah, Chris talked me into it. And we went down the, we went down that road, um, and it has been very challenging, as, as both you, Brad, and, and Jeff know. But it is very rewarding, and, and working with customers is something that I've always, I've always really enjoyed, and actually grown to enjoy more since since we've started with the company and been able to interact with customers a lot, whether it's through email, Facebook Messenger. Um, sometimes it's through FaceTime or, or when you actually get to talk to customers in store or at a trade show. I would love to be a fly on the wall back when that was, how long have you guys owned Lungeon? Must be what, seven, eight years, probably. It's coming up on 10. Um, we started in, in, we started talking with Chad Kane in the middle of or early 2013. I think everything that, you know, the acquisition paperwork and everything went through sometime in, in 2013. So we're coming up, um, coming up on, on 10 years actually. And we were both pretty young. I mean, I think we and Chris were, were both in our, our late twenties when we did it, which I guess that's not that young to start a business, but comparatively for our industry, that, that seems like it's um, pretty young. And we went into the shows not knowing what we didn't know. And until you kind of, until you do it, you, you just, you don't know a lot of things. So we kind of jumped in head first and made a lot of mistakes along the way and are fortunate to be still going now and have been able to, to bring some new products. And a lot of people have got and caught some, some great fish on products and hopefully made a lot of great memories. Honestly, Matt, I, I'm really, <laughs> I'd be ecstatic. What you guys have accomplished in the Muskie uh, world, you've really, truly grown that company. And Lungeon's become a, a really big name. Well, thank you very much. I We're not quite on, on the level of some of you guys. It takes a really huge commitment and kind of, you know, go, doing the going full-time. I know you can carry it full-time. And not quite ready to make that jump, but I, I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Well, the full-time gig is not always easy either. There's no question about that. But uh, I think our, our industry isn't really that easy. You know, it, it's kind of amazing, but it, it comes down to a lot of hard work, right? And I think uh, it's funny to me because everybody thinks, oh, they're, they're multimillionaires. They're building baits. It doesn't work that way. You definitely have to be passionate about this business to be able to continue going down these paths. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was certainly not insinuating that it's easy. I was actually insinuating that going full time, I think would be harder. You're, you're kind of taking that plunge. And once you, once maybe you get to a certain level, it's, it's not as risky, but in the beginning, that's a, I'm sure when, when you and Carrie made that decision, I don't remember how long ago you said it was, but I'm sure that was not one that you took lightly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're 100% correct. I, I didn't take it that way at all. All I'm saying is, is that, uh, I think the perception a lot of times gets miscued, put it that way. And what you guys are accomplishing, it, it's large. It truly is. And this industry is not necessarily the, uh, 
the uh, the easiest. What am I trying to say? Business platform to go after. No, I, we are still a small niche, um, and there's still kind of a finite number of anglers who are willing to pay, you know, twenty to forty dollars on average for a bait. Some baits that might only last a fish or two. Most guys, they're bass fishermen, crappie fishermen, bluegill fishermen. They they have no problem throwing away a twenty cent grub or plastic worm, but a rubber bait that gets you know tore up by a muskie. That's you know that's a, that's a tough tough pill to swallow. So I know I know you know, and I'm, I know Jeff knows, but we both take a we all take a lot of pride in selling a bait uh, to customers because they realize that they spend a lot of hard harder money on on the baits, and there is a lot of hard work that that goes into all of it, and you get served quite a few slices of humble pie along the way. That's a, a really good way to put it. That's for sure. <laughs> and, and then the retail side is, is almost just as crazy. And I know Jeff and I talk about this a lot, but some of the things that he ends up dealing with as well, and I'm, I'm not looking for a pity party by any means, and I don't think that's where we want this to go, but it truly is a wild ride. And like I said, you just got to be truly, truly passionate about what you're doing or it's, it's not for you. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's kind of funny though. Matt talks about how if he knew back then what he knows now that, you know, maybe he wouldn't quite get involved in it. And this, like, I can't say that I'm a whole lot different than that, Brad. I mean, it's a little bit kind of the same. Like you said, the personal sacrifice that you take. I mean, I guess we all should have been smart enough to realize what it was going to take, but you know, just, uh, I mean, late nights and, and, uh, all that, that, that goes into it. If you really want to be successful, obviously, if you want to, you know, if you want to just get, you know, I guess like mediocre results, you could go fishing a lot and do that kind of stuff. But I don't think any of us are willing to do that. So it's, it takes a lot of sacrifice and a lot of time. And I don't, I don't know if looking back on it, I'm too far in now to, to turn back all the way around, but sometimes you wonder, don't you? Well, on, honestly, I guess the way I look at it, um, it's my passion. It's my love. And, um, I don't think it's unlike any other business. I mean, we can say, oh yeah, it's really tough to be in the musky industry or bait manufacturing industry, whatever you want to say. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's unlike any other business that you might be in. You know, I mean, it, say you're going to be a carpenter. If you're going to be a carpenter, guess what? You probably do work seven days a week. That's the way it is. I mean, owning your own business, I think, is the key that we're probably talking about at this point. Yeah, I agree. I think running your own business, especially if you haven't run your own business before, which was the case for me and Chris. I don't know. I know, Jeff, you had, had a business. Brad, you, you, you were running a guide service before you started the Muskie Mayhem. Is that right? Yes, correct. I had Muskie Mayhem so you- guide service probably six years, maybe even eight years before the business. And Mayhem Tackle has been around 18 years now. So, so, so you guys had, a, had you guys at least kind of knew running the business was, you know, I, I've, I've always, or I had always been an employee. Chris had, the Air Force had been his employer as far as I know, even after he got out of college and before he went to college. So we were maybe more used to, I'm not going to say a nine to five because I don't think either of us ever just worked nine to five, but it's certainly a different, different hour set and different kind of way to regulate your time. You might not work nine to five, but you might work nine to two and then five to two <laughs> some days. <laughs> so you kind of, you kind of figure, figure a little bit of a balance. And I think 
having a, a passion for whatever you do makes it makes a big difference. And like you said, Brad, all businesses have bad days. Um, my my day job, I have some good. I have a lot of good days, and I have some days that, that aren't great. Whether it's making a mistake or dealing with a customer that I think is being unreasonable, and I have to just kind of bite my tongue, or whether it's just you know getting a project sat on my desk and it's a forty hour project and it's, it's due the next day. That's just kind of how the world works sometimes. So you just kind of grit your teeth, grab a cup of coffee, and finish it. That's for sure. All right, let's switch topics once. I know one thing you brought up was, was Chad Kane, and I guess ironic that you brought up his name. It wasn't ironic because that's the company you bought it from, but like Brad and I had recently talked about Chad Kane. Yeah, what's he up, what's he up to? Is he, have you talked to him? Is he still fishing? What's his story? I haven't stayed in contact with Chad nearly as well as I should, and a couple of my other friends from Southern Illinois that worked with Chad, I don't believe have. I'm not sure that he still must be fishes. He did move up north um, to be with his family after they got out of London Lures. He lives in somewhere in Land and Lakes area, I think. And I think he does some ice fishing, but I don't think he don't think he musky fishes anymore. Sure, because he was a it was a name that we brought up or we we had talked about, you know, just for uh, I don't want to say like historical sense, but like I mean, he's he's been in the industry for a long time. He's seen a lot, so we had you know, coincidentally brought up his name as a, a potential podcast guest. So it's, uh, yeah, and like I said, it was a little ironic that you brought up his name, but anyways, let's, let's move on again. Let's, uh, talk about, you know, Southern Illinois and Southern, Southern muskies. Cause you know, everything's kind of getting cold up here in the North and, you know, people will still get the itch to chase muskies. What kind of seasons do you have down there? I mean, if, you know, an angler from Wisconsin wants to come down, how long are you typically fishing yet? So yeah, we just kind of got started for the fall. Uh, as you guys know, it was a pretty hot September. So really, our water temperatures weren't into the middle 70s till about the first week of October. That was the first time I got out musky fish this fall. Uh, but our season, typically, we take a break when the water hits 80, and it's usually in early to mid-June. And then again, in mid-September, the last few years, we've had really hot Septembers. It's been till almost the end of September. And that's where we have hot water. But besides that, you can fish September, October, November, January, February, March, April, May. January and February can actually be really good good times of the year to fish. Water is certainly not crowded. And we rarely get ice. If we do, it might be for a week where we get a cold snap. And there might be a little bit of ice in some of the coves. And usually that's gone. The last couple of years... I think we've had about a week to 10 days where you couldn't get to the entire lake because there was a little bit of ice cover. And it's, for some reason, it seems to come in like the second week of February of the last few years. So realistically, I mean, for the most part, if people want to come down at just about any time of the year, they, they could probably find, you know, fishable water. Yeah. When fishing's really good up north, you know, summertime bite that you guys have, there's not really a huge reason to come down here, but if you guys get, if you get the itch in December, January, February, March, you know, even April, we have good fishing. There's just maybe a 10 to 14 day slow period. It's actually during the spawn. It's usually the end of March, first 10 days or so of April is pretty slow. And, but before and after that, until the water gets too hot to fish, uh, we have good fishing. Now let's talk a little bit about, you know, water levels. Cause I mean, the majority of people are going to be coming down to fish Kincaid. 
Do you have any issues with that you know, as far as high water? I mean, is there a time where you're like, hey, it's probably not going to bother to come down. We're going to get too much rain. Things are going to get too too high, too muddy, you know, for them to come down. Or is that not something you guys deal with? So we're fortunate. Kincaid is not a flood control reservoir. It has a natural spillway with a three-foot fish barrier. So we don't lose very many muskies over the spillway. It has to be an excessive amount of rain for the water to actually free flow over that fish barrier. Um, and the lake drains like naturally and much faster than any small dam can, can pump a big res or could pump a reservoir period. So we don't go through those big giant swings where the lake will come up 20 feet and then it'll get dumped down and make fishing really tough. We may with large rains in February or March, the lake may go up a foot and then slowly go back down for the next couple of weeks. It may stay up six inches to a foot, but with a lot of natural shoreline, that little bit of change in depth really makes fishing better because it moves the fish even tighter to the bank. And there's a lot of rows of, of stumps that we're fishing a lot of times in springtime that are, they go from being in one or two feet of water to two or three, four feet of water. And the fish are more comfortable up there. As far as fluctuations, that doesn't really affect our fishing. If we get excessive amounts of rain, like any reservoir, the water will get turbid for a few days. Some of the biggest fish that I've caught in the spring and some of the biggest fish that I've witnessed in the spring have come shortly after big rains because a lot of times it warms the water up. Uh, a lot of times it, you know, it brings fish into the creeks because of you know actual current from the creeks draining out. Uh, that being said, it usually takes like two to three days for that water clarity to improve enough to where the fish seem to react to artificial baits more favorably. All right, so Matt, let's talk. So we kind of got, you know, a layout of the land a little bit. You know, you, you can pretty much come down fish anytime you want. Do you guys have, let's just talk a little bit about seasonality, I guess. So, you know, up here in the north, it seems like that September time frame, fish push shallow, you can get them on bucktails, top water, that kind of stuff. Do you guys have a time of year where that's pretty typical? You know, is that even a typical pattern that you guys see? We have two times of the year in the fall where the fish go ultra, ultra shallow. So the first like real big cold front usually happens in September. I always kind of watch the weather channel or AccuWeather to see the first time that the nights are going to go into the low fifties or high forties because it'll cool that real shallow water back and there'll be a wave of muskies, even some of the bigger adult fish that will go like to the very, very, very backs of the creeks and will be in ankle deep to knee deep water, usually less than, you know, two and a half feet. Um, and there's a good topwater bite and a good bucktail bite for about the first three to four hours in the morning or or to lever till whatever the fog burns off, which sometimes that's 7 a.m. And sometimes that's not till like 10, 30 or 11. So fishing really is good almost most of the morning. Um, and the other time that that happens, when the main lake turn starts going through turnover, which is a, usually in the mid-60s, that occurs sometime usually in the last half of October, first couple weeks in November. We're kind of still in that period right now. There's kind of a migration of shad into the backs of the creeks during that turnover and up into the northern reaches of the lake. And that time of year, the fish again and some of the biggest adult fish will go to the very backs of the creeks and kind of use laydowns, use standing timber. Sometimes some of those areas have little patches of weeds, although it seems like the coves that are the absolute best don't have thick weeds. 
because the fish will not go all the way back and bury themselves. They like they seem to like to be on open flats because they it seems like they'll hunt in groups and pin those groups of shad against the bank. So there's kind of two times, and that second period is usually when the water goes into the mid fifties. And again, actually we catch them on a lot of spinnerbaits because of all the like wood and junk leaves and weeds that we have in the water at that time. But bucktails and topwater still work, and we have caught some nice ones on topwater well into November and December. That's a little bit different than your guys' bite when you guys kind of just get the fish that come out of the main basin and they more go to just to your kind of like your weed edges as opposed because you don't have actual creek arms. You might have bays or you might have like a little inflowing creek, but you don't have fish that actually run in the coves because you're mostly fishing natural lakes. So it's kind of the same. It's the same premise. I think your guys' waters in general are, are more clear and you're fishing a lot more natural lakes. Now, some of like the quote-unquote flow, you guys call them flowages in Wisconsin, right? Same thing as a reservoir, though? Yep, pretty much exactly the same. I know I've watched some things and talked to a few guys. It seems like the fish on the Chippewa flowage, and I guess some of those other flowages up there, Rainbow, I can't think of you guys have so many flowages, I can't think of all the names. Uh, but it seems like the fish, from my experience on Kincaid and Southern Reservoirs, it seems like those fish do similar things in that they go ultra-shallow, once you guys get the cool down too, is that kind of on par? Yeah, I would say that's with those waters. Yeah, I would say it's pretty similar to what we deal with. I mean, I would say there's a shallow push in in September, and then again there can be that shallow push right around the turnover period time period. They can go ultra shallow there too. It really depends. I mean, sometimes they sometimes I mean sometimes they'll go deep too. So it's hard to say. It's you know how muskies are there. I mean, like we learned last week, they're shallow deep or somewhere in between. So. Yeah, but typically I would say that's pretty similar to what we would deal with most of, you know, for, you know, for that time period. Obviously ours is a lot sooner. We start to see that shallow push sometimes in, in late August, but you know, our water temperatures are much cooler. I mean, yours, you said yours, you're just going through turnover now. So you're like in the, what, mid fifties? High fifties probably. Okay. It was, I was out, I had some friends down that were fishing. This is kind of my favorite time of year to fish so i've been taking some days off i was off monday and tuesday and i fished saturday sunday last weekend i'll be fishing tomorrow and i'm fishing wednesday as well we were like 61 to 62 last tuesday and then we got this cold snap so i'm gonna say we're probably like in the high 50s now we're way way past that that high 50 stuff was uh, sometime in october but you know we probably like most of the midwest we saw much warmer october than or i shouldn't say much warmer but we definitely had warmer periods in October than what we'd maybe typically see. Although I, I don't even know what typically is anymore. Cause it seems like we kind of go through this pattern all the time where you're going to have a warmer than what I would consider to be normal October follow and you're, at some point you're going to have a cold snap in that October and then it's going to warm up again. And then you don't know how that, how long that sticks around in November until you know, the bottom basically drops out and once it drops out, then winter's here. And that's kind of where we're at right now. So it's, I, I don't know. It's, Trying to say something is normal for weather these years is impossible, I guess. Yes, I'm kind of on the same thing. It seems like our falls are roller coaster, real high, weigh 20, 30 degrees above average, and then real low, 20, 30 degrees above average. And I don't think because it takes so long for, because Kincaid's a pretty deep base in most of the systems, 50 plus feet deep in the main creek channel. It doesn't change that water temperature very very much when, when it's changing like that. 
but in the springtime, those big fluctuations really hurt the fishing. And I know that for your guys' waters, once you get into that late October period, this when the bottom falls out, it you guys it can go to ice real quick. Because you know, I, I grew up fishing in Chicago and and a little north of there, and so I'm well aware how it can go from being like shorts and t-shirts weather to snowmobile suit in a week <laughs> yeah. easily or, or, or a couple of days. That's, that's where we just came from. We just came from a couple of days. Brad, I think you're learning that right now. Aren't you out on the water with uh, Chase again? And last week you probably were in sweatshirts. Maybe the water temperature was a little bit cool. So you might've had to, you know, have pants on, but it, you know, the air temperature was 65. So you probably didn't, but now you're probably what bundled up and everything. And you probably got your, uh, your heater going for when you're trolling. I don't ever bring a heater in the boat, but I think I've talked about it before on the podcast. And one of the things that you can do is go to either Walmart or Fleet Farm or wherever might uh, be in your neck of the woods. But the little seated heats really definitely help. They're they're made to go inside your car. You plug them into the cigarette lighter. That will keep you going throughout these cold days. Honestly, Chase and I didn't use it today. We probably should have. It was 23 degrees. You know, the temp isn't so bad, but the wind really eats you up. That's for sure. You know, one of the questions that I wanted to, you know, I was trying to get in there. <laughs> I had my phone muted the first time when you yelled at me there. But Matt, how long do you see those fish kind of hang up when they first go shallow like that? That's a good question, Brad. So because when we've had this hot and cold weather, when they first go shallow in September, in my experience, they'll go ultra shallow for the first couple hours of the morning. There's a few fish that will stay in that real shallow water, but the more mature fish seem to retreat back to like six, seven, eight, nine feet of water, and they'll kind of sit in the very trough of the creek channel and just hang out. And then they'll kind of move back to that shallow water in the last couple hours of light. And then until the until it gets, I would say, until the water gets into like the middle 60s, I don't really see them stay way back in, in the very back in that shallow water. Um, and of course, if we get a huge warm front or a huge cold front, that usually gets them pushing out of that real cold or that real shallow water too quickly. So if we get stable weather, they'll stay back there in that, in that general area and then kind of push to like, say the back or stay in the back third of a cove. But if we get huge water swings, it seems like they'll, they'll retreat back a little bit to a little deeper water or to at least to where they're have a closer proximity to deep water. Yeah. I'm not sure, Matt, how you, you know, what your weather patterns were. Obviously I, I know what ours were and this fall was insane. I mean, normally that last week in August, at least here in the Northern part of Minnesota, that last week in August, we'll see our first cold front and you'll see that massive push that you're talking about. And it can be incredible if the weather stays solid, right? Just, if it cools down and stays cooled down, but when we had like this year, all the way through the month of September, the fish would push shallow, then they'd push back out, and then they'd push shallow, and they'd push back out. But the weather was going up and down, up and down in, in air temp, which then caused some of the, uh, the water temps to kind of bounce around as well. If we have a nice general cool down, say it kind of that nice solid cold snap, it seems like the fish pull, pull right up into the shallower sand, some of the shallower weeds. And as long as it doesn't flip-flop again, they'll hang out there for quite some time. But honestly, I want to know your opinions on this because 
we all talk water temps, but I think a lot of times we miss out on calendar dates more importantly than water temp. And I want to know your opinion on calendar versus water temp. Oh, that's a really good one. So I will say what you were saying about August, we're like the exact same thing in September. And it just seems like stability makes a big difference to keep those, the fish shallow. Like you said, when it gets real hot, it gets real cold, the fish move in and out and in and out. And this year with the way it was hot, and then we got a big cold front, and then it went right back to being hot a couple weeks ago, and it was hot last week. It seemed like there were a lot of super, like, immature fish, like 30 to 34, 35-inch fish that were in the back areas of the coves. But in the back areas of the coves where the bigger fish would normally position, like the, some of the best... Some of the best ambush positions, some of the areas where I've caught, you know, we've caught mature fish year after year after year. And there were, instead of it being a 42 to 46 inch fish, there was a 30 and a 32 sitting there. But you're asking about if I think that it's more important with water temperature or calendar. I do think that the calendar makes a big difference because it seems like the water temperature eventually catches up the calendar. But I think as far as migration, they're both important. I think that the water, I would say water temperature is more important overall. And usually they catch up, whether it's they catch up in September, whether they catch up in October. Fortunately, sometimes it all snowballs. And like you guys know, it happens too fast and it catches up in November or December. But I, I would say if I could pick the water temperature and I wanted to go fishing exactly when water temperature turns this temperature, I would probably choose over, say, November 13th, as opposed to if I could pick when the water exactly is going to turn 55 degrees. Because there's a, you know, there might be a week or two weeks or sometimes even three weeks fluctuation when that water temperature gets there. It's amazing to me because, you know, the, the longer I fish these fish, the more I start to consider the, the calendar being more of a, a, a critical part to the process. And, and the reason I say that, and I agree with you, I mean, water temps are going to catch up to the calendar, right? It, it's just bound to because that's the seasonal transition. But at the end of the day, it, it's amazing to me. We really had a relatively warm. I mean, we had a little mini cold front that last week of August, the beginning of uh, September, which is typical. But ultimately, we kept waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And we kept checking those shallower spots that we'd normally kept fish that last week, August, first couple weeks of September. And we'd see that push that you're talking about where fish would bounce in, they'd bounce back up. And I would agree with you, this year, typically, the smaller fish seem to be shallower, right? Now, I say that, and then we put a 54 and a half in the boat. You know, it, it's just weird. You don't know, and you have to keep checking it, right? And so as anglers, I think um, a lot of times, if you, you just go back, look at your pictures from last year, if you can, you know, Chase said this, I don't know, six, eight ago on the podcast, one thing you can do is just take a picture of the fish. Once that fish is released, take a picture of your graph where it's going to show you the date on your phone. And now it's going to show you the water temp and it's going to show you the depth. And it's a really good way just to go back and check your history of, of some of your catches. I'm not good at it. I'm not very good at recording what we did and how we did it. And uh, I think that's a really simple way to do it, though, is quick picture, and it definitely helps you kind of put things into pers perspective for what to expect the following year or years to come. 
But I will say that I agree 100%. I think if that cold front stays, the bigger fish will stay longer. I don't know. The longer I fish them, I think calendar becomes more critical than, uh, than the actual water temp. It's really strange. Yeah, that, that, so that was a great point. Uh, Chase's idea of taking a fish for the graph and you catch a big fish, that's like simple brilliance because it's so easy to forget, you know, what, what, what were you throwing? What was water temperature? Where was your boat at? You might remember a general area you caught a big fish, but that's a great idea. Pretty fortunate. I, I have a, a good memory with musky fishing. With a lot of other things, I can forget everything, but it's kind of crazy how these fish you remember date, time, cast, lure, leader, water temperature, what time you launched the boat, all that goofy stuff. Your question, I definitely agree the calendar seems to make a big difference. And like you were saying, I've gotten burned, but I've also been really rewarded where, you, where say it's like October 15th and you know there should be some fish that are using main lake, big main lake complexes. And you go fishing four or five different spots that are all different and, and you, you know, you see them and they're all super shallow. They're not on main lake complexes. They're in the back of bays, but you keep coming back to a main lake complex and fish it. And some days or some weekends or three or four days in a row, you don't get any fish, but some days you come out to that main lake complex. And even though the conditions are not what they normally are that time of year, you pop a big one. Um, and it's happened Many, many times, even though, you know, the water temperature is not where it was, the water clarity is not where it was, or the weed growth isn't where it was. But some of those big fish, it's, it's October 15th, and you know that big fish use those spots in the middle of October. So there's de it's definitely not like a simple, you have to go by the calendar, you have to go by the water temperatures. If there was any, like, black and white in this game, it would make it, it would probably make it so much less fun but it would certainly make it a whole lot easier because <laughs> there's really almost no black and white. Well, that's musky fishing basically in a nutshell, right? I mean, there's no real rule, but I think, you know, honestly, you could add another whole part to the mix here. Um, I definitely seen it this year. One thing that I noticed a lot throughout the month of September was one day they might be in the sand, right? They're, they're using that sand probably for warmth, gathering a little bit more heat, Rocks can definitely be a key. A lot of the bodies of water that I fish, I don't have a lot of rocks. So it isn't a huge factor in my world. But one of the things that I did notice is they were utilizing different weeds at different times throughout those transitions, whether it warmed up or it cooled down. There's a lot of grassy weeds in some areas. There's uh, dense cabbage in some areas. And then you get coontail and then you get the bald stuff, right? So day to day, I would notice different transitions Today, they wanted to be in the grass. Tomorrow, they wanted to be in that cabbage. Then maybe they're in the cabbage for two or three days, and then all of a sudden, they're in the bald spot. So definitely got to think about some of those key factors as well. Yeah, you could, and that, that really throws a wrench in it for people who aren't really like intimately aware of all of their underwater life and kind of all aquatic life in, in your environment. But I saw something fairly similar. It seemed like in the beginning of October, we were already like, six to eight weeks in a drought and we were still kind of in a drought. And so even though we don't have big water fluctuations, we're just down almost three feet just from evaporation from a warm September, October with no rain. And now we're into November. And so a lot of the shoreline weeds that will normally hold some fish, we'll catch fish on top waters or burn a bucktail over. 
those whole weed edges on the slow slope of shorelines are gone. Um, there's not much to them. Now, the deeper weeds that are in 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 feet, um, which were mostly coontail, uh, were holding fish, but it was it was strange that some of the Eurasian milfoil that was only a couple feet off, off the bottom compared to the coontail that was five or six feet off the bottom, it seemed like the milfoil was not holding any fish, but the little pa- pockets of coontail would have several fish on it, and you could literally go down a weed line or a complex that was a couple hundred yards long, even if it wasn't on the point or one of the inside turns that always seems to hold an active fish. And those big clumps would have the active fish on that spot. And that was, that's really different for me than it's ever, than I've ever witnessed. It's, it was almost always topography where the, you know, is a slower sloping point, And so the weeds taper off and that's where the active fish sit. Or there's a big turn, there's a little saddle, kind of your typical topography dictating the way fish move on and off structure. So that, but that was something new. And I think that's something that you have to have a lot of hours or you have to get really good with your side and graph to really look at. I would say the, the best way that I learned to use it before I had GPS and before I had side imaging and all I had was just your basic down imaging and to read depth was take a deep dive and crankbait and cast it into it and see what's down there. And then you kind of line up, okay, so this is, I'm getting this type of weed here, and I'm getting this type of weed here. And when you kind of the fish, take a mental note of that every time. Because like you said, I wouldn't say that it was changing daily and I don't have enough time. I will have, I don't have enough time in the water like this fall to say, oh, it was, it was this way this day or this way this day. But it was different sections that were holding fish than, you know, for the last, say, 12, 13, 14 years in the fall you know, the active fish would be on this topographic structure of a big complex. So we've seen something kind of along the same lines as you. And I, I think that has to do with a lot to do with the environmental conditions. And he, here, and it sounds like there too, is just because of the sporadic weather as well as the normal or warmer than normal weather that started out in August, September, and October. Yeah, definitely. We've seen some of that drought towards the later part of our season as well. So I, I do think that that played a factor as well. So no matter how we cut it, and I know you hear this a lot on the podcast, but weather trumps all, right? I mean, if you got weather, guess what? You're probably going to see some active fish. So it's definitely uh, the trump to all other ideas and thoughts. Weather can trigger these fish. And that I mean, when's the best time to go musky fishing? Whenever you can, right? That's the way I look at exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, people ask that question, and I'm like, hey, you can't catch them from the couch. So get out on the water. That's when, if you got the time to do it, get out there and do it. You're going to learn something. And, and that's the beauty of musky fishing. I think it's, um, it's always like the steps or the process to actually putting more fish in the boat is about trying to learn something and retaining it. And unfortunately, I'm not really good at, you know, you mentioned that, you remember all those different little details. I'm horrible at that. I really, truly am. I, I can get into a pattern and I can work that pattern for, but next year, guess what? I'm probably not going to remember every single detail. So I, I have to try to figure out ways that I can compute that later. Yeah, that's why I said Chase's idea was, was so brilliant because I know you guys have talked about this and there's some, some really great guides, some really excellent anglers that have talked about they have logs and they stay with them 
And when I first started musky fishing, I had a log and I went back to it and there were things that I had forgotten that I had written two years before. And that was when, you know, maybe I'd caught 30 or 40 muskies total. So it's a lot easier. As you know, the more fish you catch, the more things you can forget easily. Especially when you have some, some days where you have a fair amount of success, you know, several days in a row. Or, you know, one year this pattern works, the next year you're onto a kind of a different pattern. But I think taking or taking a a log with enough detail that you get moon phases, weather, and a couple of days before and after, I would almost think that would have to be kind of a digital log because otherwise you would be writing an hour and a half every night. And as we all know, the last thing that you want to do after fishing all day, getting something to eat, um, and finally getting to sit, finally getting to sit down after casting for 12 or 14 hours is to sit in a book and write. Uh, Cause we're all totally wiped usually, but all that, all those data points are like such big pieces of the puzzle. And when you have, you know, 500, a thousand, probably in your, you know, in your case, probably several thousand data points that you could use for fish you've located and caught. That's invaluable. And the only way you can get it is from time on the water. I think a big component to that too is, and Chase and I actually filming today, you know, we were trolling, we were doing some other stuff, but ultimately we were talking about some of the transitions of anglers, right? So what I'm talking about is, okay, we just spotted a fish. It followed to the boat, right? And guess what? We were on a hard break line and there was weeds in front of us and we moved that fish, right? Right away in my mind, I can think of multiple other places on the lake or I can look on a map and go, hey, this spot looks so similar to it. There must be fish on these structures. Figuring it out on a daily process, I think, is is very key too because I think a lot of anglers, they know that that one fish is there and they're going to beat that area. Boom, 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 boom. But guess what? You can go to other spots on the lake with that same exact type of structure and benefit from that too. And I, I think some people, and, and I've visited with a lot of different anglers about this over this past summer, they struggle with having that ability, I guess would be the best way to say it, to move to that next spot and try it because they already know there's fish on this particular spot. Why would they leave them? And I get that as well, but you always want something in your back pocket, right? I think these fish will, they transition from spot to spot throughout the season. It's always great to have spots where you know fish are, but know where they might potentially go as well. A hundred percent. I have a really good kind of real life example from this past Tuesday. So I had two guys in my boat, friends of mine that are very new to the musky game, but really passionate. And um, I'm sure you feel the same way with clients or taking kids. Like it, it's, it makes it much easier and a lot more enjoyable day when you got two people or even with one person who try really hard. Everyone knows that person that's pessimistic and it's not as much fun, but that's kind of my main thing. When I, I don't, I don't guide. Um, but I like taking people fishing, like taking kids and people that have a positive attitude and try hard. I love, uh, you know, I can fish with them for 12 hours, but we had been fishing a whole bunch of different patterns that have, that have done well in the, in the past, um, you know, 10 years or so. And we were only getting about one fish a day. Now, you know, we're not fishing a trophy water. And in general, our stocking is about a fish an acre. So this time of year with low 60 degree water temperatures, and from my past experience, I was thinking that we should get three to four opportunities a day. Not so much both three or four, but we were only getting one. Uh, we were four, you know, I, 
told you're always, it's always a good day if you get a muskie. And I told those guys that, but the last day we, it was the full moon, which was Tuesday, um, seven or eight areas, which we had fished. I, I kept telling them, I said, I know there are fish here. One or two spots. I saw a few on side imaging that were plastered on the bottom and I thought were muskies, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. But we fished these same coves over and over and over again for three or three days in a row. And the fourth day we go in them and I know I kind of like almost hear them sigh like we're fishing the spot that we haven't seen any fish in again. And I, and I just kind of said, guys, I, I know fish set up on here and like the criterion you were talking about. So it's on a steep weed edge. So I knew I had to fish big main lake coves. It had to have at least 35 feet of water on the outside of the cove. Um, and it had to have a deep creek channel that went all the way to the back with timber, little patches of weeds. And then there were like two or three spots, which were like the key spots in the coves where the active fish would always set up. And I had pointed out these spots. This is where the active fish set up. This is where the active fish set up. This is where the active fish set up. So finally, like 10 minutes before the major started, we got a real nice fish on Tuesday morning. Um, for, and we proceeded to go fish the next, like three or four areas that we had went through without so much as a follow or, you know, a sniff fishing, fishing every single one for the past three days. And we saw or hooked or had a follow from fish in every single one. And because I knew all the areas where the fish set up and I kind of at least somewhat figured out, okay, these, these variables are what the fish need. We kind of put that together but I was going over that, that thought process with those guys because they aren't as familiar with the lake. You know, they're still kind of in the phase of, you know, what's my confidence twist bait? What's my confidence spinner bait? What's my confidence bucktail? What, you know, when do I use a glide bait? They're still kind of in the phase of just learning how to use baits. They're not quite to the phase where you really can start patterning fish and you feel like you could, whatever bait you put in your hand you can be comfortable with if you have, have had some time with it. Um, but I just think like anything else, you know, like there's levels, there's, you know, first grade education to PhD in musky fishing. And it probably takes 25 years. I hope one of these days I can, can hear and sound like, like you do. And some of the guides that, you know, that have caught at least thousands of muskies. It just lets you synthesize those variables so much better and so much quicker because everything's magnified when you might only have a 20 minute uh, activity period during the day. When, especially when you get into this later fall, if you're not, if you're not fishing high percentage spots all day long with the highest percentage baits, a lot of times you're just washing baits. Unfortunately. Um, I think that's, that's what makes this really fun and a very cerebral, but also what makes it really tough. Um, and it makes, you know, a hero one day and a zero the next day, because one day you make the right decision and you feel like you're the king of the world. And the next day you feel like you're going to make the right decision. And when it comes to it, you look back on it and, and, you know, maybe some guy who doesn't even fish the lake is out there for the first time, you know, the guy at the bait shop told him to go to this point and cast a bait. And he sat there all day long and he caught the fish or maybe he just wandered on a fish. Um, but that's kind of what makes it fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree. The, that's, I think, the whole reason that I still truly, truly enjoy the muskie game. I mean, like I said, you're learning something every day. The pieces to the puzzle are the fun part. It truly is. And I, 
I think a lot of people, all they think about is the catch, the catch, the catch. And last week we talked to Spence Petros and he was talking about how you need to put some of those pieces of the puzzle together. And, and that is the process that's, that makes this sport so, so fun. And uh, I think once you learn that, you definitely become a different angler as well. Yeah, and I, I think it's really incredible that young guys like Chase, Chase, you're 22 now, is that right? Is he on here? No, he's, 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 he's 21. He's 21. So that's even younger. He barely have a drink. Um, that because of natural talent, as well as learning how to use your electronics and your boat and all the different lures, as well as just, I think, being a gifted angler, that you can get to a level that's that, that, that as high as he is at such a young age. And I, I feel like maybe 30 or 40 years ago, it took longer, but I think now, and I'm not taking anything away from Chase, because he's a fantastic angler. I, I talk to him all the time and bounce ideas off of him. I think that it's actually easier, even from things like backlash podcast. I've learned a ton from listening. Um, I, I go back and, and listen to some episodes. Um, when I was putting together uh, my wireline trolling rods, I remember I, Brad, you, you waited on that a little bit. I know, I, I know Lazarus talked a bunch about it. Um, and it kind of got me to, to get some, to get some wire lines and I'm planning on doing some, some deep, a little bit of deeper trolling with some of those wire lines this fall. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but, but this can be a great resource and there's just an endless amount of, of videos, uh, chat rooms, things like that. I think the thing that's hard for the newer anglers coming into it and the guys that I had in my boat this, this past weekend, I feel like they kind of, enlighten me on that a little bit is that there is so much information when you're new it's a little bit hard to separate you know what's really good information and what is just people catching fish on video um because i mean i like watching people catch fish on video i don't know if you guys enjoy just you know just watching what i would call just like pure entertainment guy catching a big fish in clear water on a bucktail that's fun to watch. I, when it gets bored for me, I'll, I'll go fish something else. The shows and the podcasts and things that really can teach people things are the ones I feel like they should try to invest the most time into because it will give them the rewards to learn the most when they get that, when they get more opportunity to be on the water and they can translate it into more fish catches quicker. Um, I don't know if you guys, if you, you know, from clients and customers, both in your boat and just talking to, um, you know, about, about baits. If you guys, if Jeff or Brad, if you guys experienced that. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, one of the neat things too, Matt, is I think one component that maybe you left out was guides and utilizing guides. And I think it's strange. I mean, I I've been guiding since uh 99 or 2000, something like that. And I think today's world, it's harder for these younger guys to start a guiding business because I don't think people are actually utilizing them like they once did. And I guess what I'm getting at there, I'm not trying to sell any guide trips. I don't need to sell any and I don't want to sell any. But the uh, there's a lot of good guides that you can go hook up with and you can cut that learning curve real quick. Say you're going on a week trip. Try to utilize that one of the first days that you get to that water and your learning curve is going to change dramatically. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. And then, you know, it's funny. I had a, a client last week and basically he was telling me, 
you know, I've utilized guides the last five years. And the reason I have is I wanted to learn more about June. And he said, you know, I get in your boat. It's one thing I can go to a different guide's boat and learn something totally opposite, but both are effective during that time frame. Now I'm going to utilize it in July. I'm going to utilize it in August. And that's how he kind of put the pieces to the puzzle together. And if you're cutting that learning curve, whether it be through a podcast, through TV uh, shows, or maybe even YouTube stuff, or so on and so forth, you're definitely going to be cutting that learning curve. And is there information overload? I think there is at some point, right? But in your mind, keep it simple and break things down slowly. And you're only going to grow and, and achieve more quicker by going slower, potentially. Yeah, that that's a great addition. I actually kind of feel silly that I didn't that I didn't add that because that was one thing that I recommended the two guys I was fishing with the last couple of days. They were asking me places to go and this and that, and I said I would highly encourage you guys to go fish with some like real professionals. Um, I said you guys get to come fish with me this this fall, and they're talking about coming in the spring. And I said you're more than welcome. I said, but just do it at once a year and only getting my view on you know a lake or two is really going to limit your like learning curve and you're just going to think the way that I think, which like you said, there are guys that do it different ways. Some fish the same exact lake. One guy will tell you, you got to throw this bait in this color. The other guy will say that bait in that color will never catch a fish because he doesn't have confidence in it. But both of them can have success doing different things. Um, and that's something from fishing when I, back when I used to fish a lot of tournaments, I, I felt like, all the opinions that were hard and fast and that this bait never works at this time in this color, I feel like there'll be someone that tells me that, that it does. And then they'll go catch five fish out in the day and you'll, you know, you'll eat another slice of humble pie. And that was something that tournaments really kind of, kind of showed me there's always some fish biting somewhere. There's the, especially in warmer water, there's usually multiple patterns that are working on the lake at, at the same time. You know, you go fish two spots and you don't see them on, you know, rocks. So you don't go back to rocks or whatever it is. But then another boat had fished rocks, but he had to fish 15 spots to find his first fish. But really it was that you weren't in an activity period. And then once you got an activity period, the fish were moving on multiple structures. Um, so yes, that's a great resource. I think that we were talking about like the information overload I think that, that might lead a little bit toward people saying, Oh, this looks so easy, which it always does on TV. It looks so easy. Um, you just like, I, I know that we've talked and we both, both work with Mike keys. He does a, he does a really good job of kind of laying out the struggle, but in 22 minutes and you guys talk about it on, on your show too. Like you can't show the struggle to catch a muskie. If you're lucky to catch one in a day, in 22 minutes, you know, you still, you know, someone can still in the time that they take to eat lunch, they can watch the whole episode and maybe they hear, Oh, this is filmed in three or four days, but they don't realize that a lot of times it's three or four days waking up before the sunrise, going to bed after the sun sets and fishing the whole time in between. And afterwards you're talking with your fishing partners. Where should we go? What should we do? You're sharpening hooks. That's that everything. Like, as you guys know, because you do it, there's a ton that goes into it to be successful. And certainly, I, I will say myself, um, I fished with guides when I was younger. We used to go to saltwater. And early on, I realized, okay, this this is how you get 
this is how you raise your level of something quickly. Um, you fish with you fish with people who are much better, much more knowledgeable, can teach you boat control techniques, can teach you you know different terminal te- te- techniques that will that will catch you fish because when it comes to you know throwing a bucktail, throwing a topwater, throwing a bulldog, everybody snaps their snap the same way. You know anybody can tie a Palomar or a Uni or whatever knot you tie on your leader, but how you position your boat, where you position your boat, how you move it along structure, and and how you synthesize all the variables are really what what will separate you to start fishing for the for muskies, and then graduate toward expecting to catch one every day or multiple fish every day, depending on what kind of water you're fishing. Uh, I think it's it's a graduation that you can make in a couple of years now if you spend a ton of time in the water, but it usually takes several years or decades. And fortunately, in today's world, you can speed that up literally exponentially. Well, there's definitely the information highway, correct? I mean, we just kind of covered all of the bases, I think, and I'm sure there's more that we didn't cover. But uh, I think you brought up a really strong point, and that's tournaments. And I, I think tournaments will humble lots of anglers, right? And it really, it, it's always, I found it dumb to think about. When you have a home body of water and you have home guides and, and really good anglers on a particular home body, a lot of times they're the ones that struggle when the new angler that just shows up is the one that actually gets it done and gets a paycheck. But you, there's no question about it. Somebody is catching fish when you're struggling, right? And and you might get one or whatever and then find out this guy got five. And it's it's definitely humbling. And I think that's a huge part to the sport too that is overlooked. Don't don't look at that negatively. Look at that as a positive and, and give yourself reassurance. I think confidence is number one in this sport. And uh, even in our own TV show this this coming season, you're going to see. I mean, we had some struggles too. And the one thing that we did is we kept our chins up. We kept doing what we were doing. We had confidence in what we were doing. And then we succeeded. So I'm hoping that we show some of that tribulation, I guess, in some of the seasons uh, shows this coming year. I've been doing some editing, kind of reviewing some of the old footage that we went through this year. And uh, it's definitely uh, a part of the show this year. Put it that way. I'm looking forward to watching it again. I think, uh, Jeff, I was going to bring you back on here. And Brad, I know, Brad, I've watched a lot of, of your videos through the years. And Jeff, I, I, I watch your YouTube show and I've talked to you and heard you talk about your confidence bait. I know, Brad, maybe 10 years ago when you had all those DVDs out, maybe it wasn't even that long ago, there were a few shows where you'd grab like a gold and like a golden copper double cowgirl. And that must have been your, I remember you just like threw it for three days straight and you were like, we're not seeing any fish. We're getting one bite a day, but this is my confidence bait. I'm going to go fish the best spot and I'm going to keep throwing this bait because I know I'm going to get bit by the right fish when they get active. And Jeff, you were saying, you know, I, you know, I have limited time to go out, but I, when I do, I find myself putting a nine inch suic or weighted suic in my hand and I go fish the best spots. And I, you know, I feel the same way depending on what the time of year is. When I'm struggling, I will grab the bait that I had the most confidence in that I feel like I can cover the water column that I want to and just go run spots that always hold fish. Um, some, and sometimes it's just that kind of stubbornness. If you have a little bit of background or if you get some good intel from somebody, get a high percentage bait that, or a bait that you have a ton of confidence in. Because even if, you know, Lake's got a great topwater bite, 
but you don't have any confidence in any top waters. Grab your grab your bait that you have great confidence in, um, because you're going to fish that bait better. You're going to pay more attention, and you're going to put your boat in the, in a better position to catch the fish when they actually do get active. And I think I think that plays a lot into success. Once you get really confident with with kind of each bait or a bait in each category, it really opens up kind of Pandora's box to where you can, you can have success on any water that you go to. But it, it takes it takes some time to get to get to where you're comfortable with a bait in each category. And something else, coming back to be an advocate for hiring guides, I know myself and almost every other beginner muskie guy. You catch a fish on one bait, and you buy like fifty of those baits. Well, a double cowgirl is an amazing bait. I caught a ton of big fish on it when I first started muskie fishing, and I thought it was like. I thought it was like a magic lure, just like a lot of guys did for a while. And it certainly still is a good bait. I, I still have some. I still catch fish on them. Um, it's not, it doesn't seem to be like the cheat code it used to be, but I didn't really need 50 of them. I needed other baits that would work in different situations. But I think that, you know, because muskies are the way they are, you might like catch a fish or two a week or a weekend. You, you catch one fish on one bait and you think that you need to branch out to get all of those baits. Um, and hiring a guide, I feel like, and I tell a lot of new anglers, say, go hire a guide. If you're going to buy 20 musky lures, don't buy 20 of the same kind. Buy a diving rise, a couple different top waters, a couple of baits, a couple bucktails, stuff to cover your whole spectrum. And I think that would serve a lot of guys really well. I know we always, this is kind of a, a joke, um, a bunch of the guys that I fish with here in Southern Illinois. If you're from Minnesota, you got a top water a bulldog and a cowgirl. But if you're from Pennsylvania or New York, you only need crankbaits. That's it. And you only troll them. You never would think about casting a crankbait. Um, and then maybe you grab a bulldog if you have an open water bite. And then, you know, Wisconsin guys only cast at weeds with bucktails. And now that's not the case, but when you meet, you know, when you meet a, a lot of customers, there's such regional bias that if you're on this water in Pennsylvania, you have to troll a wooden crankbait or if you're on this water in Minnesota, you have to throw a powder bulldog, but you know, powder bulldogs work in Pennsylvania and crankbaits work in Minnesota. So once you kind of get out of that box, I, I think it really helped guys become better guys or, or girls become a lot better fishermen overall. Well, this kind of leads into one of Jeff's favorite questions on the podcast. He always asks, when do you change baits? Right, Jeff? Absolutely. It's always the key, right? When do you change baits? When do you switch spots? I mean, you can, you can break it down to any decision that you want to. What's, what's the key? What's the answer? What's the magic number? Well, I, I got a, I got an answer that I think as an owner of Team Rhino Outdoors, you'll like. So I was talking to my, the, my, my buddies as we were fishing and I was changing through um, a bunch of different twitch baits. I was throwing some shallow raiders. I had some cranes and then I was throwing some shallow invaders and the guys were asking, you know, when do you throw this black one? When do you throw the shad one? When do you throw this fire tiger or orange tiger? And all these different, a couple of custom colors I had. And I would say, honestly, guys, I've figured out like five or six colors that I think that I've caught fish on that I have, you know, success on. I think all the colors work throughout the whole lake. I said, but when I, if, when I figure out, okay, I think I, we need to be throwing, you know, a blade in the front of the boat a pitch bait in the back of the boat and something that rides deeper, you know, behind them or in the middle. If I'm staying in the twitch bait category, 
I will just grab a different color because it keeps me engaged in fishing. Because while I do think color matters, I think it matters the least of, of all your variables. I think your, your size, your speed, and your depth are your most important variables. And the color is the very last one. So I found myself changing colors just to keep me engaged because I think that, that fishing lures, the color is as important to the angler or more than it is to the fish. You guys ever think of it like that? Well, yeah, it goes down to confidence, right? I mean, that's kind of what yeah. it is. But, you know, the, the one thing about confidence is for new anglers, sometimes it's hard to get that confidence because you still haven't caught muskies, you know? So you you need to get out there on the water. You need to catch muskies in order to develop that. You know, you said you have a confidence bait. Brad does. I do. You know, but they came with, you know, many years of experience, many, you know, muskie catches, you know, knowing, you know, like we'll go back to what Spence said. Like sometimes it's just like how you read the water, how you read the, you know, the day, that kind of stuff. It's hard to we've talked about it a million times. There's no real hard, fast rules with musky fishing. So it's, you know, sometimes it's difficult to know when to make those changes because you really don't know, you know, my, like the cliche thing is like, let the fish tell you, or uh, yeah, let, let the fish tell you what they want or, you know, listen to the fish and, you know, but sometimes they don't tell you anything that day, you know? So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult fish to, to uh, chase. And like you said, you eat a lot of humble pie. Yeah. I think when I first started the thing that translated for me is I always liked the smallmouth and largemouth fish when I was growing up. And so I had become really comfortable with fishing spinnerbaits. I had really become really comfortable fishing like medium diving and deep diving crankbaits. So when I kind of got in areas where I know I would use a, a deeper diving bass crankbait, I was comfortable using a depth rater before I even ever caught muskies on them. Same thing, you know, when I, would normally fish a half ounce spinnerbait for bass. I had no problem throwing a one and a half to two ounce spinnerbait for muskies because I had already had that confidence in that style of lure. All it was was throwing a bigger rod and a bigger lure for 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 a bigger predator. For someone that's new, maybe that would translate for them. But like you said, Jeff, the best way to translate that confidence is to actually catch fish on on that lure, and that just takes that takes some time on the water. And it also takes sometimes changing a lure that's having success to a different lure because the worst thing you can do is, is change lures when the fish aren't active and then it shuts off your confidence to a certain lure that could be a really good fish catcher. Um, and that kind of comes with, as you gain more confidence, you know, it's hard to take a bait off that you've had follows on or that maybe you've already caught a fish or two during the day and put something else on because you're like, well, if this will catch active fish, let me take this bait out and see if this will catch active fish. And I think a lot of times you'll learn that being in the right place at the right time is, is the most important of, of all. So let me ask you one question, Matt. What's your, what's a lure that everybody catches muskies on, but isn't your confidence bait? You know, for me, it would be a Medusa. Lots and lots of people catch muskies on medusas all the time. It's a great musky lure. I mean, it's probably one of the better ones, but it's definitely not a confidence bait for me. What would that be for you? Um, I would say a dive and rise. I have three or four, maybe even more kinds. And over the year, I probably, over the year, I probably used 10 different ones. Um, and I've caught a few fish on, on each of them, but they're like, it's like one of the last baits I pull out. Every once in a while, if I got a couple guys in the boat 
and I put the two or three baits that I know that active fish is going to eat, I'll throw a diving rise in the back. I know that everyone catches fish on suics. Um, everyone catches fish on sledges, bobbies, trying to think of what else, um, cabbage ghosts. Uh, the big daddy and little daddies actually have been catching some fish down here. Brad, I don't know if you're still making those, but those are a nice diving rise. Yeah, I mean, you can go on and on and on. I'm sure you got, you got, you got a bunch on the site, but that's probably the, that's probably the bait that I'm the least confident with in multiple situations. And, and like I said, unless there's guys in front of me throwing different baits, I rarely will, will throw that first. Yeah, that's interesting because that would probably be my my go-to there. You know, like you said, they'd be the either the 9-inch or the 10-inch weighted suic. That would be it. And if I was picking colors, it'd be copper carp. But uh, just there was a there was a season that I've, I fished. It was all on YouTube. And, I mean, literally, I think that's probably about one of the only baits I ever threw. And almost every time I was throwing it, I was getting bit. So, you know, why take it off, right? Yeah, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and that's I hundred percent agree. Um, here, I would say in the fall, a white spinnerbait that our our tandem nutbuster, I've had more success in in my boat than probably any other bait. Uh, I can kind of fish it deeper, shallower. I certainly use a lot. Of, you know, I got a whole other garage full of baits, but kind of something in the in the realm of white and tandem nutbuster is is a bait that is pretty much always um, in the in the rotation, especially this time of year. Hey Brad, you got a uh, you got a confident you got an unconfidence bait? I would call it something that everybody else is catching muskies on, but you can't or don't. Yeah, but the one that I comes to mind right away is swim baits. It doesn't matter what kind they are. I think they're a great bait to locate fish. You're going to see fish with them when you're using them. But uh, as an example, this fall, I know there was a bunch of people catching fish on some of the different swim baits and swimming dog and what have you. And I actually pulled some out and I just can't deal with it because I literally have not caught fish on them. I mean, I've seen fish caught on them. Ultimately, I think it's a follow bait. I don't really believe in, in the catching power of that bait. So it's something that I wouldn't throw. Right. Which is funny because if I go fish down in Madison with Jeff Hansen, he's going to have a swimming dog on probably 50% of the time during the right, you know, right portion of the season. And, and he's catching them on them. We got a video where he caught three of them on them. And like, literally it was probably about a two hour window. It was unreal. And so it's just, it's just crazy how that is. Right. But I've never caught a fish on a swimming dog either. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the structures that we're fishing as well. Right. If you're, if you're fishing a structure that allows for a dive and rise, great. If you're fishing a structure that a swimming dog might work on, great. But uh, I think it goes back to some of our comments earlier where we are talking about, you know, you go with this guide, you're going to be doing this kind of stuff. And if you go with this guide and you're on the same body of water, maybe a day later, it's two different perspectives of how you're going to tear up that spot. Yeah. And to add that, I think that different tools are, you know, more effective in one person's head compared to someone else's. You know, um, if your expertise is throwing a suic, Jeff, if you were fishing, say we were fishing in the same boat and you're fishing behind me and I was getting the first shot at, at every active fish. If you really know how to work that suic, and I, I saw it because me and Chris used to fish and he used to throw away suic all the time. If that stop and start with a bait down 
four, five, six feet is what the fish wanted. The per- whether you're in the front or the back, the person that's throwing that suic is going to crush fish and a straight line bait, top water, bucktail, spinnerbait, um, shallow crankbait is going to get ignored more times than not, unless you really get to fish that are really, really aggressive. But if they want that stop and start, uh, I, that will catch maybe all the active fish that day. Um, and the guy in the front throw on a straight line bait, not, not going to get any action. So yeah, I, I definitely agree that, you know, different guys, have different confidence baits to add to the swim baits. Uh, I had a lot of, confidence because I've fished swim baits for a while or different species. So when they first came out, uh, the Poseidon and the swim dog, and I know that the, uh, Shedzilla, I think is the other one that's made up in Canada. Mm-hmm. They're really good baits. And I have a lot of friends that catch, you know, dozens of muskies on them a year. Brad, I've I caught a few fish on them, but in general, I feel like I'm always tweaking them to make them do something because while I've had a, a lot of big fish show themselves on them, I tend to feel kind of the same way as in that a lot of places it's a good bait to find fish, but not very often have I got fish to react to it. And I, I kind of wonder if I'm fishing it wrong, if I'm fishing it too slow, too fast. Do I need to pump it more, pump it less? Do I need to just straight retrieve it? Because I get, you know, 10 to one follows over eats um, and swim baits. And like you said, there's, there's almost no doubt the the effectiveness of the baits because they guys catch them you know north to south east to west and even up in the biggest trophy waters guys catch huge fish out of every year yeah it's interesting is you know like, like you said it could be subtleties on how you fish it versus how the guy next to you fishes it i know in the beginning there when i was fishing suix i didn't pause quite as much as one of my buddies did and he was catching all the fish and then i, I kind of watched him i'm like hmm He's got that thing, just a little extra pause. And I started to add that little extra pause in there on occasion. Uh, now we're talking late fall. This isn't during the summer. Summertime, I think things change a little bit. But, you know, and, and that that's what it was. It was just that little extra hang time. And, you know, for all I know, we we're fishing darker water. Maybe mine was, they were just missing it. You know, they'd come swing and miss because it was out of there before. But with him, that extra pause, that bait was still there a few times. So it's just, it's interesting, you know, like I've said it probably on the podcast before. It's amazing sometimes that we catch any of these fish. Yeah. With as many half-hearted swipes and stuff, uh, I had, we had a fish come up and kind of, I call it flail or make a kind of lazy attempt to, to eat it. Um, on, I think it was Monday morning, first thing in the morning and the guys I was fishing were, were asking me about it. Um, I wondered, Jeff, are you running, are you running pan optics? I know Chase and Brad are, right? Yeah, they are. Uh, I played with it a little bit this fall. Not as much as okay. I should yet, but yeah, more than I, I have been I, previously. I don't have forward-facing sonar yet. I actually got all set up last fall to get it, and I couldn't decide if I was going to get Hummingbird or Lawrence or go with Garmin, and I never really made, I guess I've made a decision to get none, um, and I still would like to get that technology here in the next year, maybe two years. Um but I wonder how much that's changed your guys' fishing because talking to, like I said, talking to two guys in the boat, you know, being in the boat with them for four days and then going to dinner with them and talking musky behavior and stuff. We had a few fish that came up like at the end of the night and I only saw them on my side imaging and they were asking me about that. And I said, I believe I don't have like objective, like objective 
feedback that I know the fish actually are following. But I do think, even just from the few that I've seen on, on side imaging, that there's a drastically higher number of fish that actually engage on your bait at some time during the retrieve than you have a follow from or ever see your follow. Because I've definitely seen from side imaging that there are many days where you might get four or five follows and never see any of them except for on your, on your electronics. Has it changed the way you guys fish? Or have you had times where you're like, oh, wow, you know, these fish are coming in and turning off 15 feet before the boat, but I'm seeing them on my, my forward-facing sonar, and so maybe I'm going to pause the bait here, or I'm going to do something different, and that kind of changed your whole day around. One of the things that I would say is that still today, <laughs> side imaging, I think, is more important than the live, honestly, Matt. And um, okay. I mean, the live so technology, there, there's some benefits to it, right? I think one of the best ways for uh, boat control for somebody that's maybe just trying to learn boat control, live can re definitely be a factor. And I know that I run it, say, 45 degrees off my boat. Um, I'm fishing out of the back. And so I can see what my clients' baits are doing. I can see if they're having a follow. But more importantly, I can see where that weed line is, right, before I get to it. So, yes, you can use that in side imaging, but when you're in a 20-some-foot boat, you're already crashing that structure before it even registers on your side imaging, right? So that way I utilize it. I utilize it also for my trolling. And some of the neat things about using live for trolling is you can throw the, uh, the little guidebook out that uh, tells you how deep this bait runs with this much line out. Immediately, you can set your lines, watch them on your live imaging, and know exactly where that bait is running in the water column and set that rod, right? Walk it over to the other side of the boat, put it in the rod holder. Let out the next bait, check out exactly where it is in the water column, set that rod. So it definitely is fun that way. The other part with trolling is, is it, it provides some interaction that maybe you're not going to normally see um, or even have an idea that you have a follow at that point. But having that live lets you know when you have a fish following now you can be interactive with that fish. You can pull the rod out of the holder. You can pull the line. You can try to rip that bait. Um, you can maybe pause the motor so that that bait starts to rise. There's a lot of different things that you can do with the live side. But ultimately, side imaging, I think, is still more important than your live imaging. We're going to actually post tomorrow um, on Mayhem's 10,000 Cast on Instagram and Facebook. We're going to post a picture of a fish that follows up to the boat and you can definitely see the transition of that fish going through the figure eight multiple times. You're going to see picture, 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 and in the description, we'll kind of explain what that means. But if somebody wants to see how effective side imaging can be on a following fish, we're going to make that post tomorrow. That's awesome. Yeah. We, we experienced that a couple of times. There were actually, there was one spot where, I got a really good shadow of a muskie and it was right on the spot where normally an active fish positions himself or positions itself, but it never engaged on the bait. And I, I told, I told our guy, my, my guys, I said, Hey, you know, a fish reacted to one of our baits and we went through there. That's why we got that shadow. I said, cause that, you know, what looked like a stick, the first pass through that was plastered on the bottom. Um, I, you know, when we came back through and we get the, great side image you get the shadow of fish i showed them and we did end up catching a fish 
there later. I think it was the next day we caught a fish on that exact spot. Could have been the same fish. It might not have been. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that, I just know side imaging changed my fishing so much. Um, you know, it almost seems like you get a follow that you visually see. It's not, it's, it's as important, but you can almost add in your feedback that you get from, from side imaging. Like, okay, I think there's a muskie here compared to, I know there's one here. Um, and it kind of gives you image to come back or gives you confidence to come back to a spot. And I was just wondering how much like that live forward facing sonar helps when you're both when you're guiding as well as just fishing, because while I can see it being both a negative and a positive, you know, you, you see a fish engage a bait on your client's bait and you're like, okay, speed it up, speed it up, speed it up, speed it up. Does that, does that actually make them nervous 40 feet from the boat? And instead of going in doing the figure eight, like their muscle memory would do, do they get kind of clammed up? And, and then, you know, by the time the fish comes to the boat, they're already nervous because they know there's a, you know, a big fish following their bait. I was just kind of wondering what your guys' experience was with that. Yeah, you're right. It can uh, create some nerves, right? So it's definitely one of those deals where you have to uh, be aware of who your angler is in the front of the boat. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, confuse them or, or get them too excited and they're going to blow the bait out of the surface, you know? So you have to read your client as well. It's definitely a tool that works for that, that's for sure. But I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the other things I did this year, Matt, is I went to Garmin's new trolling motor. And having that uh, side imaging built right into the trolling motor has kind of changed the game a little bit as well. For two different reasons. One, now I can see some of those follows on that screen as uh, my clients are on the front of the boat. Also, I can use it and utilize it more as knowing exactly where the weed line might be or say a steep drop off, um, I can utilize it in that form. The other side to it is we do a lot of side drifting, right? We're on a lot of big weed, massive flats, right? So when you're side drifting, your side imaging on the back of your boat, pretty much useless. Everything's kind of a blur, right? Well, by doing that side drifting, I can take that trolling motor and I can turn it 45 or 90 degrees and now all of a sudden I can see underneath that boat or I can see somebody getting a follow that way as well. So that's kind of changed the game. But uh, going back to live and kind of announcing that they're having a follow 40, 30 feet away from the boat, you definitely got to be careful with who that person is that you're telling they're having that follow. That's for sure. Yeah, that, I, I can see that getting guys a little bit, you know, people nervous, especially that they're not used to having fish follow from a long way. So the Garmin trollmore, is that the force that the, Gar the Garmin makes now? The brushless motor? That is correct, yep. Okay. Yeah, I, for the first time this year, I've seen a lot more of those Garmin forces, and I've seen a lot more of the Lowrance ghosts. Um, it just seemed like five, ten years ago, it was all motor guide and Minn Kota. But I've heard that those brushless motors are really nice. Real quiet, too. Yeah, I don't get, you know, got no deal on trolling motors. I was a Tarova guy forever, right? And the reason I was the Tarova guy is because they're really a bulletproof motor. The one thing that it truly becomes a factor as a guide standing in the back of the boat, the neat thing about the Garmin uh, Force is that there is no cable. So it's all Bluetooth to the foot pad. Um, that allows no cable trip point for your clientele and so on and so forth. And then, you know, the built-in, and 
Obviously, Minkota makes one too, where you have side imaging built right into that head. I personally never thought that I was one of those guys that I wanted side imaging off the bow on a trolling motor. Now that I have it, I absolutely love it. Yes, the motor is truly, truly quiet. They're remarkable. They've got a ton of power. You got to kind of be careful because if you dial that thing up, you're going to throw people out of the boat. Wow. Yeah, I'm. My boat is 18, and so I got new electronics coming up on four and a half years ago. So I'm going to be kind of due probably next year to kind of upgrade. You're, it might cost me a lot of money there, Brad, because like you said, I don't have any kind of deal with Minkota or Motor Guide or anything. I, I'm a free agent, so I can use whatever. So that's something I have looked at, and I've been in the boat now with uh, with with Garmin, with Lawrence, and and Hummingbird as far as graphs a bunch. I have birds right now. I like them, but I don't think that one brand has the best of you know of all anything. I think each each of them have like their strong suits. So. Yeah, so that's something that I'll have to do a little more research on this winter. Doing up well, that's kind of the time to, to rewire and everything. If you have questions at some point, Matt, and you want to talk about it, give me a shout. I'd be more than happy to talk through what I've learned. Um, I ran Bird for a long time. I was Lawrence previous to that. I made the switch to all Garmin this year, and um, I'm pretty ecstatic about the change. I will say that... Uh, you're seeing it in the bass world probably more than anywhere. A lot of these guys that were sponsored by one of the companies, and whether it be Lawrence, uh, Bird, or Garmin, they've made the decision that they aren't going to be sponsored by one electronics company, and they are now mixing up their whole electronics in their boat to benefit themselves, right? So it's quite bizarre what's kind of going on throughout this whole uh, electronics side to the world that we're in fishing. So I definitely, uh, I'm not disappointed in my, in my change by any means. The biggest reason that I did it is because I wanted to learn more. And um, I think that that's what still excites me. It was an expensive move, um, but I'm happy so far. Cool. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. All right, Matt. So before we get out of here, for people that are looking to get a start on, you know, fishing down in Illinois, do you have any tips that you can help out? Yeah. If you're coming, if you're coming free spawn, there's 10 or 15 bays that always hold fish. Um, keep your boat in 10 feet of water, fish some standing timber and throw one, have a guy in your boat, throw a bait that stops and starts and have another guy throw a rattle bait. And if you, go through and fish several days using those two kind of presentations, you will have success in the springtime. Matt, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to, uh, to talk muskies with us. I'm, I mean, there's no guide affiliation. Maybe want to talk a little bit about if people want more information on lunge and lures, how they go about doing that. Yeah. So, uh, Chris and I own lunge and lures. You can see us on all social and also at lungeandlures.com. If you ever want to reach out to me, I'm on uh, social too, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I think maybe starting on a little more, doing a little more YouTube uh, coming up in 2023. So we once, once again want to thank you, Matt, for talking to us about muskie fishing in, in uh, southern Illinois. And we want to thank our listeners for putting up with us for another episode. And we'll uh, catch everybody again with a new one next week, Wednesday. Yeah, thanks, guys.